The May WASDE offers surprising insight into the 2022 crop year and shows that USDA might be thinking a little differently about the risks that lie ahead. What does this market-moving report mean for the season to come? That's today on Field Posts. DTN Progressive Farmer podcast that dives deeper into the most important trends in agriculture to explore the business's cutting edge. I'm your host, Sarah Mock. The May WASD dropped Thursday, May 12th, with USDA offering a first look at what might be ahead in the 2022 season. DTN's Todd Holtman joins us to unpack the updates the department has made to production estimates for corn and stocks predictions for wheat. And we'll also take a closer look at what all this might mean for a shifting demand landscape. The global weather picture from the rain delaying planting to drought in the plains and in South America will be in focus as we explore what pressures the market is most worried about. Then we'll check in on the wide-ranging impacts of the Ukraine conflict and what it means for everything from wheat exports to soybean crush demand domestically. We'll discuss a heat wave in India, the complex supply chain picture, and why USDA is tweaking a long-held prediction practice in 2022, right after this word from our sponsor. Today's episode is brought to you by MyDTN. In today's environment, it's essential, more than ever, to get the most current and accurate information to help save your valuable resources and continue to be profitable. Get access to all the information you need to deal with this change from DTN. As the leading independent, trusted source of actionable insights and market information, MyDTN gives you accurate weather forecasts, the most extensive database of grain bids, and the most timely news and analysis from our award-winning news team. These features and more are available 24-7 via desktop, laptop, and any mobile device to be with you on the go. Learn more at MyDTN.com and start a free 14-day trial. Now, back to the show. DTN lead analyst Todd Holtman joins us today to discuss the May world supply and demand estimates. Todd, talk to us a little bit about the expectations going into this report. What did traders think the USDA was going to say? Yes, when it comes to new crop estimates, there's a certain feature that's kind of wide open about what USDA might say. And that, I think, especially is true on the international scene when we talk about things around the world that are happening. And in that regard, probably the biggest uncertainty was what is the world wheat supply situation going to look like this year without full participation from Ukraine? So I think in terms of uncertainty, that was a big question all of us had. What would that end up showing up like? We did have some hints of U.S. production estimates where they would go because we knew fairly well that USDA would probably use the March survey planning estimates, which they did. And we thought they would use the yield estimates from the February report. But in the case of corn, they surprised us on that one. We'll talk about that in a little bit. Talk to us a little bit about the market reactions coming out of this report. Just the top line, 24 hours out almost where we are right now, are things have things leveled out mostly? Are we still seeing impacts of this report? Yeah, you didn't need to be a, a professional analyst to see that this market had a big impact on wheat prices 
on Thursday. We had a limit up move in September Minneapolis wheat after the report came out, 60 cents higher there. For Chicago and Kansas City contracts, those were both up over 60 cents on the day. We had new contract highs in both the Kansas City and the Minneapolis wheat contracts. So obviously there was a bit of a bullish explosion coming from the wheat estimates. For corn and soybeans, it was really rather quiet. Corn and beans were up basically three cents and seven cents respectively on the day. And that's actually where they were trading right before the report came out. So they did not show a big impact. Yeah, focus in on wheat a little bit. Wheat production, talk about the the estimates that folks had going into this report, what USDA actually predicted and how certain are we, given that the wheat season is not quite like the corn and soybean season, how certain are we about those kind of production estimates that we're seeing or supply estimates that USDA is using? Yeah, in the case of wheat numbers, this report is actually fairly good. And it's because we're much farther along in the growing season for the winter wheat crop than we are, say, for corn or soybeans. So we already have a pretty good acreage estimate of winter wheat, I should say. And of course, we know already that there's some very serious weather challenges here in the U.S. The Southwestern Plains is in very serious drought situation. We're concerned about what production will look like from that region this year. And in spring wheat planting areas, North Dakota and northern Minnesota have had just an excessive amount of rain this year. They had colder temperatures for a long time. They have not made much progress in planting that spring wheat crop yet. So those are two big weather challenges we have here in the U.S. that we were facing ahead of this report. And talk to us about stocks for wheat. Obviously, big impacts when we talk about global stocks. Ukraine is in the mix in this report uh, in terms of impacts. India is a country that we talked about, I think, just last month for the first time. And now it seems like maybe we talked about it too soon. Give us what's the global update for wheat and how did USDA talk about it in this report? Yes. In the new crop situation, uh, the new season ahead, world-ending wheat stocks, USDA now estimates at 267 million metric tons. That was quite a bit lower than the roughly 272 million metric tons that the Dow Jones pre-report survey was looking for. The, there are some big increases estimated for Canada and Russia, but in spite of that, obviously we have a big drop, not only in Ukraine's production, but more importantly, in Ukraine's ability to export wheat. USDA only estimating 367 million bushels will be able to sneak out of Ukraine this year. That's quite a bit less than, say, the 890 million bushels that we would have expected before the invasion earlier this year. So Ukraine remains a, a big source of concern. You mentioned India. Up until recently, India's crop had a decent surplus going for it, and it was mentioned as a possible replacement of some of that lost Ukrainian wheat. But they've had a heat wave the past several uh, weeks, and uh, that crop estimate got reduced in this report. India's government was looking for 105 million metric tons. I believe USDA put India's crop down to about 108 million metric tons. It, it's had quite a drop from uh, a month ago, what most private estimates were expecting. And as we look at kind of the demand side picture for wheat, are we seeing any, we've talked a lot about prices on the market side and especially regional impacts in terms of shortages or, or potential price spikes and how different regions might deal with that. Any major shifts we've seen in demand for wheat in terms of maybe major markets switching to other grains or just reducing how much wheat they're going to be demanding for this coming year? 
Yeah, that's a good question. Of course, here in the U.S., we're a little bit out of the loop when it comes to wheat demand. We're just not geographically positioned very well to benefit from some of the best importers in the world, which would be like Egypt, some of the North African nations, and especially after they've dealt with a little bit of drought this year in North Africa. The the U.S. doesn't benefit from that too much directly, but there is still very active world wheat demand and world wheat trade going on in those regions of the world. So we still have strong wheat demand. The problem is, if you look at the top eight exporting countries of world wheat this year, the ending stocks estimate from USDA is only about 1.78 billion bushels, which is not a lot in international terms. And that's actually the lowest amount of exportable supplies we're going to have that we've seen in 15 years. So I think that gives a decent indication. Again, May estimates are fluid. There's going to be a lot of changes as the season progresses. But to start uh, with an estimate that is that tight is one of the reasons that the wheat prices were so bullish and and shot up so strongly here on Thursday. I want to ask as well, we'll talk about planting delays for corn and soybeans seem to be the bigger impact. But what are we seeing in terms of impact on the wheat side? Is that also, it's stressful that we have such a terrible drought in much of the Northern Plains, but rain has been delaying some things nevertheless. Where is that playing into the wheat picture right now? Yeah, there's a big concern that the question is how much spring wheat will get planted this year. It's the crop insurance final planting dates are not too far off for the Northern Plains. Understanding that even if it stopped raining tomorrow and we had a dry forecast, it would take at least a good week probably for a lot of those fields to dry out to get uh, decent planting conditions for that area. They've just been inundated with so much rain. The forecast ahead still has some light amounts of rain and the extended forecast shows more chances for rain. So each day that ticks by, our concerns grow about just how much spring wheat uh, will be planted. And then, of course, at the same time, we're dealing with that very dry HRW wheat crop. And we got a low, very low estimate of the HRW wheat production from USDA yesterday, 590 million bushels. That's down uh, from 749 million bushels a year ago. So that's quite a drop they're looking at already. And last question on wheat, and then we'll talk about it again in some broad topics at the end. But talk a little bit about the basis right now and how things are looking on that front. Yeah, for the hard red winter wheat crop, which is what I focused on for the webinar because it's our largest U.S. crop, the basis is at its weakest in five years. So it's not, and I think it's partly a function of prices are so high and we're a little bit out of the desired path of export activity. So between those two things, the basis is not doing well in Kansas City wheat. But in terms of the actual flat cash, those prices are screaming higher along with the futures. So the the basis is a minor nuisance right now. It's not really hurting uh, wheat demand or wheat prices overall. I want to switch gears and talk a little bit about corn. Give us the update on, you, you talked a little bit about it at the top, but talk to us a little bit about the change in corn supplies and what the USDA is anticipating going into the new crop year. Yes. As far as the U.S. ending stocks estimates for corn, they actually came in very close to expectations. USDA showed no change in the old crop estimate, so that's still at 1.44 billion bushels. 
For the new crop season, we're expecting a little lower ending stocks of 1.36 billion bushels. If true, that would be the second lowest surplus for corn in nine years. So it's still a fairly tight domestic situation we have for our corn supply. Did USDA talk at all about the that lowering of that new crop? Is it competition with soybeans for acres? Is it delayed planting? What did they point to as the, the justification for that lower number? Partially, and this is where I'll get into the yield estimate that I mentioned earlier, we were all expecting USDA to estimate a yield of 181 bushels an acre because that's what they used in their February outlook session, and that's traditionally what they go with in this first report. Uh, However, USDA did make an allowance for the slow planning progress this year and made the determination that they're going to use a lower estimate of 177 bushels an acre, which is the same as last year. So that was a little bit of a slight bullish surprise to markets, and it kept the uh, crop estimate down for the new season to 14.46 billion bushels. That part came in slightly less than expected. And then as far as the demand situation goes, we're still looking at fairly decent demand. We're basically looking at the same ethanol demand number as we were looking at a year ago. And on the export side, they're just looking for 100 million bushels of exports in the new season than what we're experiencing in this season. So we still have pretty active demand. And of course, we're not going to have a lot of competition, it doesn't look like, from either South America or Ukraine this year. So the U.S. ought to be positioned very well to have some very good export business in the year ahead. I want to ask about that USDA's using an alternate figure. I hate to ask you to guess about what USDA decision-making looks like, but it's interesting to think about a year like 2018 or 2019. We've had some years in the last five years that have been really like tremendous record-setting prevent plant or difficulty in planting this year does not seem quite at that level but yet this is the year that USDA decides to not use the their February number any thoughts about what might be behind that decision so if I was king of the world Sarah I would not dock the corn yield on May 12th for having a slow planting place especially knowing that this week's forecast looks much better. The, war- the temperatures are much warmer, and the, temp- the warmer temperatures ought to be here to stay. And overall, the forecast ahead in terms of rain looks uh, very workable for most of the Midwest, excluding that North Dakota area, which is having just off-the-chart problems this year. Yeah, I think it's a little early to dock the corn yield yet, and we'll see how it plays out. Uh, but I wouldn't be surprised if we start pushing that back higher as the season goes on, at least early in the season. We might have some concerns about uh, drought in July and August. Good point maybe to talk a little bit about. We I think the May report is a big one that we talk about a lot and we care about a lot and it tends to move the market, but still very early in the season. Talk to us about the uncertainty and what it takes to get from the May report to the November report, say. Oh my, yeah. Keep in mind that we really don't have a good planning estimate yet. We're just going off of a March survey, which is it's almost like an opinion poll three months before the election. So how good is that? And so we won't have a good acreage estimate until June 30th, which is a much better report in terms of quality of information. And the yield, as we say, we know nothing about the weather situation ahead yet, other than conditions across the Midwest actually look fairly decent right now. There's not a lot of drought on the map for the Midwest to the east of Nebraska, to the west of or in Nebraska and Kansas. We have some drought concern, obviously, and that 
may increase in the summertime months, but for at least to start out, we have pretty good planting conditions. That's about the most we know right now. Obviously, we're going to learn a lot as the season progresses. I can tell you statistically, being the market nerd that I am, I've done the work of comparing past May WASD reports and checking to see what kind of correlation those ending stocks estimates have to USDA's final average farm price. And I can tell you there's almost no statistical correlation. Statistically speaking, there's not a lot of useful information from the new crop estimates in this report. It's just, and that's not a bash on USDA, it's just too early. Good to keep in mind uh, as we continue to talk about this, but I want to switch and start talking a little bit about that demand. You mentioned that ethanol is still up, exports got cut a little bit, but not a tremendous amount. You mentioned Brazil and their crop. Talk a little bit about the export picture and what, you know, Latin American weather might mean in terms of their corn crop and what that might mean for demand later this season. Yes. It it surprised me that USDA kept Brazil's corn crop unchanged at 116 million metric tons, which will be a record corn crop or corn production this year if that works out to be true. The reality, however, is that conditions in central Brazil are extremely dry, and they've been dry for several weeks. And this is a time when the second corn crop, which is Brazil's largest corn crop, is coming into the pollination period. So for that uh, very important region uh, to be this dry and to have very little prospect for rain in in the forecast as we uh, continue to look ahead each week, that still is a a big concern, I think, for Brazil's ability to produce corn this year. I don't think anybody will be surprised to see lower estimates in the months ahead. So Brazil, Argentina, Ukraine, they're our biggest corn export competitors in the world, have been for some time. And for both Brazil and Argentina to be dealing with dry crops, Argentina's conditions really are no better in central Brazil at the moment, they're harvesting their corn crop and their ratings are only 16% good to excellent in Argentina. So they're also not doing very well as far as corn production goes this year. So having those two severely limited in their production by drought and having the situation in Ukraine, the U.S. is the king of corn exports this year. And if China wants corn, we're basically going to be the main source they have to come to. Last, I think, question on corn specifically is how is the basis looking these days? Corn basis is just uh, off the charts. It's the strongest in 10 years. This morning's DTN National Corn Index was just down nine cents from the futures price in July. This continues to be just a very strong sign of demand. I credit ethanol demand throughout the Midwest. And once again, as we've noted earlier, or actually the past couple years, those cash corn bids are quite generous throughout the entire Midwest. It's not like it's all for Illinois and Indiana, or it's not just the sites along the Mississippi River. The entire Midwest is benefiting from uh, very strong cash bids for corn. and That's always a good, healthy sign of demand. Let's switch gears. The ethanol call-out was a good transition into, I think so much of the soybean story recently has been driven by crush demand. We just did a story last week with Matt Wildey on the the crush expansion. Talk to us a little bit about what, soy, what update soybeans got in this report, especially on the demand side. Yes. So the crush estimate for old crop soybeans stayed the same. It was unchanged in this report. But as you mentioned, I want to note that the crush incentive, meaning the value of meal and oil that you get from crushing soybeans, 
is still a very healthy margin above the cost of the soybeans. So soybean processors have never had it so good that the profit margins that they're looking at here continue to support strong demand for soybeans. In the new crop season, USDA tacked on another 40 million bushels to the current estimate. We're looking for 2.255 billion bushels of soybean crush in the new season. USDA also tacked on 60 million bushels uh, to the export demand figure for soybeans. So those are the two big sources of demand for soybeans here in the U.S., and they're both looking very strong at the moment. And that story you mentioned with Matt is a big part of the reason. The, the strength of the investment and the expansion in the desire to have soybean oil produced for renewable diesel is a big part of this story this year, and it seems to be as big as the ethanol boom was just a couple decades ago. And I'm curious, as you watch that, especially knowing that there, I think Matt's story mentions 14 new crush plants about to come online or in the process of being built. As you watch that, what kind of pressure does that put on, you know, as we have a more domestic kind of suck on our soybean stocks, what does that look like for countries like China who are used to importing like some 60% of our soybeans? Yes. Soybean oil prices are trading at and near all-time highs. So that tells you, number one, uh, what it's doing to the market. And obviously, that makes it uh, tougher and more expensive for countries uh, to import soybean oil from us. So there's more competition all the way around. So there's competition for food-grade soybean oil. There's competition for the export market. And China and India are two big customers there. And there's competition here at home because we need to expand, <laughs> extend those diesel supplies. That darn diesel price is just shot up to extremely high levels. I think the national average is about 5.55 a gallon right now, and it's really shot up very rapidly this year. Given these last two topics we've talked about, soybean demand for crush for exports, corn demand for ethanol and for exports, where does that leave livestock? Talk a little bit about just what those demand pressures mean for pricing. For livestock, for feed. Obviously, we're seeing a lot of bearish pressure on the livestock market. And for a while, it was just cattle and feeders. But now we're also seeing bearish pressure on hog prices come down as well. And I think there's no doubt that the rising input costs are having a strain on the industry. And it's just hard to see where this rising spiral of feed costs is headed, whether it's in the case of soybeans or in meal, actually. We've seen a break in meal prices the past few weeks. That's been the one bearish surprise of the grain sector lately. Uh, meal is a source of feed. has actually That's uh, where things are going to stay very expensive, especially while crude oil supplies are tight. Things look okay in the central part of the Corn Belt right now. Optimists, I think folks are generally optimistic about the season ahead, but there's a possibility that some drought conditions might move into the middle part of the country. Do you think that risk is being priced in right now, either baked into USDA's numbers or, or that the market is appreciating that risk? Or do you think there's a potential that come July or August that there could be some significant changes to this crop and the prices? It may sound odd to hear, but as high as prices are, we've got spot corn and soybean prices near their highest levels in nine years. I don't think the risk of drought in the U.S. is being priced into the market yet. And I, I realize that sounds a little crazy when prices are as high uh, as they are, but we're already riding on the shoulders of a South American drought that has cut down our competition for exports. 
We're riding on the shoulders of a war in Ukraine that's taken out a major world producer of corn and wheat and sunflower oil. And uh, I don't think the market is yet prepared, at least price-wise, to reflect the possibility of drought in the U.S. Right now, as uh, we're going through the planting season, and it looks like this week we're going to have much better planting activity and the temperatures are warmer and that planting's picking up, the moisture levels across the Midwest are by and large in very good shape at the moment. There's not a lot of drought in the Corn Belt except for Nebraska, Kansas, and that, that western edge of the western plains. Now the risk in our forecast at DTN is that as we get into July and August, we're looking for basically a hot dry forecast. And I think the Eastern Corn Belt will largely be protected perhaps by the better moisture position that they have going into this season. But in the Western Corn Belt, where we're already starting the season somewhat dry in the Western half to come up against a, a hot and dry July and August, if that forecast uh, indeed does work out, I think it's gonna add a lot of more upward stress to our corn and soybean prices. And uh, no, I don't think the market is prepared for that just yet. And I'm not sure I'm prepared for that because we could be talking about some significantly higher prices if indeed uh, U.S. production is put at risk this year. As we look at soybean supplies right now, especially global stocks and USDA's kind of estimates there, I think given how high demand is, there's some question of also granting that USDA reports are backwards looking and not forwards looking and are inevitably on a bit of a delay. How much confidence do you have that what we know about soybean supplies is accurate right now? And how do we gauge how tight soybean supplies really are? That's a good question. Overall, I do think soybean supplies are extremely tight. In terms of world supplies, I tend to look at USDA's report of world markets and trade because that particular report gives us estimates of the actual ending stocks in South America according to their local marketing years. So in the case of Brazil, USDA is currently estimating 72 million bushels of ending stocks when their local season ends at the end of January in uh, 2023. For Argentina, that ending stocks estimate for soybeans is 131 million bushels when their season ends at the end of March in 2023. That obviously is a much tighter representation than what we see in the WASDI report, which reflects ending stocks for the Northern Hemisphere, but it's a mid-season total that gets estimated in the WASDI report. That's why I tend to look at the world market and trade data. And on that regard, I do think that supplies internationally, soybean supplies are extremely tight. And one of the indications, well, we have several indications here. We have very high crush incentives. We have very strong crush demand here in the U.S. The prices of meal and oil combined continue to hold uh, big, generous margins above the cost of the soybean themselves. So we know that that demand is active. We can see the weekly export uh, sales data every week. And we see that our total sales and shipments of soybeans are already above the new export estimate that USDA just estimated on Friday of 2.140 billion bushels. We already have more sales than that. It's just a matter of getting the shipments on their way. And then we'll also have a quarterly stocks report at the end of June. That will probably verify and confirm how tight our domestic soybean supplies are 
And of course, we look at prices themselves and they're in a very strong uptrend and just continue to show a decent basis throughout the country and so forth. So all the market indicators do seem to confirm that we have tight soybean supplies and, and I feel pretty confident about that at this time. And the one other question I forgot to ask about soybeans was, give us an update on the soybean basis situation. The soybean basis at this time is doing very well. It's actually the second strongest for this time of year that we've seen in the past eight years. As we look at the cash bids across the country, we see uh, a pretty good spread throughout the Midwest. In the Western Corn Belt, we're looking at cash soybean prices roughly in the $15.5 range. In Illinois and along the Mississippi River, we're seeing bids even above $16. So overall, we have a national average of $15.72. That's $0.35 cents below the July contract. And, and as I say, that, historically speaking, is a very firm and strong or bullish sign of support of domestic demand that we have here at home. And again, to repeat, we've got strong crush demand and strong export sales activity. So that just coincides with the, the bullish basis situation that we see here throughout the Midwest. Switching gears back to some bigger trends, I'm curious, COVID has really dominated the narrative, I think, in the last two years around exogenous factors affecting ag markets. It seems like maybe inflation is taking over from that as the new thing that is creating unexpected pressure. Talk to us a little bit about how you're thinking about inflation and its potential effect as we see these new production and stock numbers going into the 2022 season. What you know role might inflation play in prices over the next eight months? Yes, you're right to point out that inflation is dominating the outside market conversation right now. That uh, seems to be all we hear about. And of course, because of those rising inflation concerns, we have the anticipation of much higher interest rates uh, continuing to climb this year. That's also boosting the dollar, and that in itself uh, is a bit of a break on commodity prices overall in general. I just uh, want to remind people that at the heart of the inflation concern really has been rising energy prices. And those rising energy prices go back to the pandemic, number one, the struggle that we've had here in the U.S. to try to get our domestic oil production going again after the oil industry lost so much money in 2020. The other piece of this puzzle we can't overlook is the war in Ukraine and the threat of losing or banning Russia's oil production from the world market. It's just going to make the uh, world oil supply situation much tighter than it would normally be. And it was already tight before the war situation and before the talk of banning oil. So all these things tend to go along together. And unfortunately, uh, a lot of them key on what President Putin intends to do moving forward. If for some reason this war were to come to an end soon, I think that would offer a big relief to energy prices and it would cool down a lot of the inflation worries and a lot of the concerns about rising interest rates. But that doesn't seem very likely anytime soon. He seems uh, intent on maintaining the attack on Ukraine. And ex more experts are saying that this looks like a long drawn out war of attrition, which is not good news uh, for the West. And it's not good news for this topic of inflation and high energy prices here in 2022. 
I want to ask a question as well about supply chain, which we've talked, the, I feel like the big focus over the last several months has been particularly around fertilizer and how that has affected fertilizer prices. We saw the Biden administration make some announcements this week to potentially aim at relieving some of that. But at the same time, I'm curious, the supply chain question I think has come up as well around two things that you've already talked about. One, being able to access markets that are going to be particularly interested in wheat this year. Is there a potential to do more wheat exports to North Africa and the Middle East if we figure out some supply chain things there? And or I think one of the other things that's been talked about in the crush story is how do we alter supply chains to be able to export not whole soybeans maybe, but just meal or a subproduct if we are going to be using a lot more oil domestically. So I don't know, thoughts on updates on supply chains, how those might be affecting the markets going forward. Is that just the wild card we'll have to keep an eye on? Regarding the supply chain issue, unfortunately, that continues to be a very tough topic. We're not seeing improvement in it. We had been seeing improvement in shipping costs and we look at, we track the cost of Panamax vessels, which are used to, to ship our cargo of corn and soybeans to Asia. And the cost of the, those, that Panamax shipping was actually coming down in early 2022. And it was looking more encouraging that those transportation problems were finally getting sorted out. But once Russia attacked Ukraine again, those shipping costs went back up and now we're getting near levels almost close to the pandemic peak that we saw in the fall of 2021. The, the shipping cost issue is not getting better. Of course, we're hearing also about port congestion in China related to COVID concerns in China, and they're, they're obviously struggling and dealing with that. And their zero strategy or zero tolerance strategy doesn't seem to be helping their ability to cope with COVID and uh, that sort of thing. Uh, unfortunately, I don't have any good news and I don't see a short-term so favorable solution in untangling the shipping mess anytime soon. Along with that goes the topic of our expensive fertilizer prices and uh, shipping is one of the problems there as we've become very dependent on other countries for our sources of fertilizer supply. The war in Ukraine is a problem there because uh, we, we were buyers of fertilizer from Russia and Belarus, and uh, the war has interfered with that. And then at the same time, the war in Ukraine has led Europe to try to really push to live without Russian oil and Russian natural gas. But in doing so, it's run up the cost of natural gas in our country because now we're exporting a lot of liquid natural gas, LNG, to Europe. So those high natural gas prices here in the U.S. not only are putting pressure on us at home, but that also adds to our fertilizer production as that's a very important component in making anhydrous. So once again, it's, it's kind of a complicated, tangled mess with a lot of moving parts that depend on each other. But unfortunately, I just don't see uh, any good resolution of that uh, group of topics anytime soon. Yeah, definitely an evolving story that we'll be continuing to talk about here. Last question is, again, the May WASD is a big report to set the tone for a season perhaps, but I'm curious what is the next big numbers you're going to be looking out for, the next big reports you'll be watching for? Overall, the June WASD report is typically not a big report and we'll probably get past that. The only thing is we might know a little bit more about how planning progress is going at that time and 
what the moisture levels look like throughout the Midwest. As I mentioned, they're looking good so far, and we'll see at the time of the June WASDE report if that's changed significantly. But the major report that often has a key every year is the June 30th report because not only is it the acreage report where we get really our first good evidence of what the planning estimates will be for the year, and this year I expect that to be a fairly solid report again because as long as we don't have a serious weather difficulty, typically that acreage report on June 30th is a good indicator of the planning acres that we do end up with at the end of the year. The other part of the June 30th report is the grain stocks, and that's one of the things that I really appreciate from USDA, giving, getting that quarterly inventory of actual supplies of corn, soybeans, and wheat on hand tells us a lot about how actual demand is performing, and it's much better than the monthly guesses that we get from the WASDE report. Now, sometimes we, we, demand, we depend so much on these prior guesses that we can get out of touch with reality. And that June 30th report is often a very good slap in the face, which puts us back a little more realistic with what's actually happening. And because of that, lots of times we can see some big price reactions uh, in that June 30th report. So we'll just have to see how that plays out this year. Any other big topics or numbers or subjects you wanted to cover? I, I would just say overall that I've been following the commodity markets, been working in the commodity markets, and been in this business since 1985. I cannot remember going into a season with this much bullish potential. Just the fact that we started the year already with tight supplies, and then we got this unexpected drought in South America, which really rarely happens. It's only the fourth significant drought we've had since 1985 in South America. And then on top of that, to have Russia... Uh, attack Ukraine, one of the world's uh, largest and most important and key producers of grain that we have in the world. All these things coming together are just phenomenally bullish, and, and that's why we're seeing prices as high as they are. And of course, with the war situation in Ukraine, there's this added level of uncertainty about we just don't know what's going to happen next, and that adds a bullish premium to market prices. And then lastly, if we do have a hot and dry summer in the U.S. and we do see a loss of corn and soybean production due to a drought or stressful conditions, that's just going to add to the bullishness that we're already seeing. And it's just quite a situation that we have here in front of us. We, Of course, we don't know yet how it'll turn out, but as far as bullish potential, it's still quite possible that we could trade even higher than what we're seeing at this time. You can read Todd's full analysis, watch his presentation from immediately after the announcement of the report, and read up-to-the-minute reporting on all things ag markets at dtnpf.com. This episode of Field Post was brought to you by the team at DTN Progressive Farmer, with special thanks to Todd Holtman. This episode was produced and edited by me, Sarah Mock, with support by Greg Hillier and Kylie Swanson. And a big thanks to all of you for listening. If you like the show, please rate, review, and subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts. And until then, remember, the future of farming is here. This episode of Field Post is brought to you by DTN Ag Weather Station. Are you looking to get more accurate, hyper-local weather information? By gathering weather and agronomic data directly from your own fields, 
DTN Ag Weather Station supports you when making targeted decisions around expensive or high-risk activities like chemical applications and irrigation. DTN's Ag Weather Station can be purchased for as low as $9 a month depending on your current customer status with DTN. If you're looking to increase your weather accuracy while saving time, please visit DTN.com.